0: Good morning, beloved brothers and sisters. I'd love for you to join me in Psalm 86, verse 8 through 12. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. This is the word of the Lord. So we are going through this series, Questioning Christianity, and this is an acknowledgement that many, many people in our culture and at any given time, even people in our church, maybe even you, maybe even me, are questioning different aspects of the truth claims of Christianity, and we want to equip you to be able to answer six major questions that essentially everyone has to answer in life, and we can't just punt on these questions and default to, well, I have no answer because having no answer is itself an answer that doesn't lead to a coherent and healthy life. So, so far in the first two weeks, we've looked at questions of origin, like where did I come from? And also identity, who am I? Today we're going to come to the question of purpose or meaning, and you'll see how these overlap in meaning. And then next week, some questions about morality or ethics. And I think this is really in this series where you're going to see the the rubber starts to meet the road. And what I mean is you will see that other worldviews start to become completely incoherent at this point in time when they go to apply their story of here's where we came from and who's who we are to like therefore um, it, it starts falling apart and I also think this is where Christianity not only is seen to be more true and make more sense but I think you really begin to see the beauty of the narrative of scripture itself which we believe is God's word so this morning the question of purpose basically why am I here And I want you to think about this both in terms of, like, humankind, but also in terms of me personally, individually looking at your life. I want each of you to begin this morning by asking two questions of yourself. Number one, what is the purpose of my life? Number two, who or what gives your life meaning? We'll repeat these questions in our gospel communities because I think they're worth talking about. What is the purpose of your life? Like this is what you're living for. This is your core objective. This is your reason. And then who or what gives your life meaning? So we're thinking both about the purpose or reason for life and also what makes your life at least feel significant or meaningful. Tim Keller says to have meaning in life is to have both an overall purpose for living and the assurance that you are making a difference by serving some good beyond yourself. And we want to kind of consider both of those aspects this morning, as everyone does. So as we've been doing in this series, I'm going to begin uh, just like kind of two simple points, three subpoints this morning. But we're going to begin with sources of purpose, like where do you get your purpose from? And the first major category of purpose I want to look at is what I'll call the default purpose. And I call it default because I mean the purpose that you just automatically live, without ever thinking about it it is your instinctive objective for the day and then tomorrow you would say this is kind of what i'm living for and i want you to notice the difference between these two questions what is the purpose of human life and what is the purpose you're living for right now The first is a pretty philosophical question. It's like even in in philosophy, we call it a teleological question. Telos is like end, meaning, goal. And it's like in the teleology of my life, what is that ultimate goal I'm living for? And you would think about what is the purpose of human life? Such a deep question, right? But when we come to the question of like, what's the purpose you're living for right now? That's more of a personal question. It's more of a pragmatic question. Um, I would say, theoretically, your answer to the two questions should be identical. Well, the purpose of my everyday life is the purpose of life. Because, of course, I align every day with the purpose of life. But I think we know, in reality, most of us are not that intentional. Um, We just live for goals that come naturally to us. So, like what? Well, in a Western, modern, progressive society like ours... Almost everyone will say, if you go up to them and say, what is, what is the purpose of your life? Like the goal of your life. Most people will say something like this. The purpose of my life is to be happy. The purpose of my life is to be healthy. The purpose of my life is to be successful. Or they may say, the purpose of my life is to be a good person, whatever that means to them. Okay, so if that's our goal, that's our purpose, be good, be happy, be healthy, succeed, then where do you think we find our meaning in life from day to day? We find our meaning in like, how good am I doing at measuring up to that happiness? So we start setting smaller objectives around maybe something like relationships. Some of would say like, the thing that brings happiness to my life is marriage or a family or close friendships, or maybe it's a career Maybe it's money and the security that money brings or the, the kind of possessions that I can surround myself with that make me happier, that make me feel more successful. Uh, we have things like vacation and travel and hobbies that were like, those things make me happy, therefore that's where I find meaning. And I'm working, 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 find no meaning in my job, but when I get to go on vacation that I've saved up for, suddenly life feels meaningful again. You could find meaning around something as simple as food and drink around social standing, if your idea of the purpose of life is to be a good person, you know, many young people today are finding their identity, they're finding their meaning, their significance in volunteerism. Like, here's a a company or a cause that I align myself with that matters to me. See, I'm a good person. And I just want to pause and say, like, do you really believe this, that the purpose of human life is to be happy? And therefore, just kind of fill in the blank with whatever you think right now today. Today, maybe it's sex. Tomorrow, maybe it's a certain kind of food. The next day, I'm saving up for this travel. Then the weekend's coming already again in a week, and I'm living for that. Um, Do we really, in moments of deep thought, think like that is the purpose of life, just to chase happiness, temporal, momentary, fleeting happiness? And most of you would say, probably not, but that's just a default purpose we just fall into. So I really want to contrast these next two purposes. To give them credit, even though they're polar opposites, as you'll see, there is this interesting common denominator in the next two purposes, and that is thoughtful people recognize the purpose of life is dictated by our design. So the questions that we looked at in week one and two, we're now building on. Because where I came from and who I am will dictate necessarily what is my purpose, okay? I can illustrate this very simply. I have a hammer here, and I have an iPhone here, okay? Yeah, yeah do it, <laughs> no. I, that's, not, that's not this illustration, okay? All right, a hammer and an iPhone. This, this is a simple tool. This is an incredibly complex machine. And as I hold both of them, you intuitively understand this was made for something very different than what this was made for. I would not take my iPhone and use it like in the garage on that project to like drive nails. And I wouldn't stand here forever with this thing being like, it doesn't even work as a phone. I can't access the Internet. There's no texting ability. Um, they're, they're designed for very, very different things. So the, the purpose is you look at the design of any object. And you can even stumble on new objects in your life all the time and kind of look at it and use your mind that God has given you and kind of discover, like, oh, I bet, bet the purpose of this is to, to drive nails in a project because it's, like, the, the way it's weighted, yeah, that just feels right. And then this little thing, you know, I can pull nails and et cetera. So we, we, we kind of intuit this about everything else we experience in life. And when I look at the first of these worldviews, which is an evolutionary purpose, like naturalistic evolution... I want to mention two things. One is the inescapable problem of naturalistic evolution. And then the second is what I call the untenable solution for naturalistic evolution. So what's the problem? Well, the reason we took a couple weeks to look at this is because according to evolutionary theory, where did human life come from? It is simply energy plus matter plus time plus chance— not bothering to answer the question, where did the energy and the matter come from in the first place and what acted on them to transform them? Because according to science, that actually can't happen, not not just that it probably wouldn't. So you are the product of blind chance, just over billions and billions of years and then hundreds of millions of years of, of evolution and what we call natural selection, this impersonal, undirected, random process, and voila, Homo sapiens, here you are. And so evolutionary theory says no one designed you for anything. So what's the reason for life, human life? What is the purpose of human life? What is the purpose of existence? And the answer, according to evolutionary theory, is there isn't one. You just are. This happy accident there is no reason for life. There is no overriding purpose for life. And if you think, come on, preacher, like that's, that sounds like a Christian setting up a straw man. Really, there's no purpose according to evolutionary theory? So instead of you just thinking I'm pathetic for saying that, let's talk about what some, some leading evolutionary scientists and philosophers say about the purpose of life. Have you all heard of the philosophy known as nihilism? So nihilism is a philosophy that says our naturalistic evolutionary origin necessarily leads to the conclusion that there are no moral values, there's no way to know anything, and importantly, there's absolutely no meaning or purpose to human life. So you read people like Nietzsche, Albert Camus, Martin Heidegger, Soren Kierkegaard, Jean-Paul Sartre, and countless others are saying there is no purpose for human life. And it is a huge philosophy that influenced, for example, the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Let me let let you hear from Richard Dawkins, who is a leading evolutionary scientist. In his own words, he says, "...in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice." The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And by the way, that that quote is everywhere now in philosophy. At bottom, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Or how about Leo Tolstoy in the spiritual works of his same name? He says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live as I had found by experience. It was this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Okay, so... Evolutionary theory, naturalistic evolution, has a major problem because they say, according to our theory, not only does your life not have a purpose, it literally cannot have a purpose. It cannot have an overriding meaning because you're an accident. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but like when I, when I wrecked my Jeep years ago, and if Marty had looked over and said, why did you do that? And I start saying, well, because I, the sun was in my eyes, I missed the curve. And she's like, no, 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 the reason, like what's the telos that you just wrecked the car? It's like, well, there is no reason. It was an accident, right? There can be no reason because it's an accident. So let me just mention quickly this untenable solution for evolutionary theory. In Plato's Republic, it was initially called the noble lie. Some of you have studied this in philosophy or history. Um, The noble lie is the idea that the elites of any culture knowingly lie to the rest of us so that they can keep power and so that there's some sense of societal order and shalom, you know? Like, we'll just lie to everybody. We'll say, like, this is what you get out of this if you just play by the rules. And then even though it's not true, it works better than the alternative, which is not to have that lie in place. Okay, so my question is, what would happen if people actually intentionally lived out the implications of naturalistic evolution, if there is, according to Dawkins, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference, what does that lead to? Well, in practice, it leads to exactly what evolutionary theory says, which might makes right. It's survival of the fittest. Just spreading your genes as far and wide as you possibly can So my question is, in a naturalistic worldview, what prevents things like polygamy and polyamory, oppression, rape, eugenics, and genocide? Built into the philosophy, what, what says any of those things are wrong versus right, or they just are? And we can't make a moral evaluation of them. And that's why I say, like, the, the whole Hitler era is coasting on this philosophy, and they're the ones that actually lived out the implications of a philosophy that we don't agree with as followers of Jesus. See, secularists and naturalists have concluded we can't actually live out the implications. Like, we see that that stuff is bad. We'll, we'll come to this next week. Like, how do we see that this is bad versus good or just neutral? But they'll all say, like, well, no, we know genocide is bad. We know abuse is bad. We know that oppression is bad. And I'm grateful that they know it's bad. My argument would be they know it's bad because they actually are imprinted with the nature of God, as we talked about last week. That even though it's broken, it's marred, they understand right and wrong or a sense of right and wrong from the heart but but here's the noble lie, is they're like, even though we know there is no purpose, no meaning, by definition, we have to live as if there is one. We have to live that way, or else we're all going to be nihilists. We're all going to be like, there is no reason, there is no purpose. We're going to all be like Leo Tolstoy of like, if there is no meaning, the, no purpose, no nothing, like what prevents me from just ending my life or ending your life? It's a bad way to live. Okay, so I want you to hear, again, now Christopher Hitchens, again, like, famous evolutionary voice talking about this noble lie. He says, a life that partakes even a little of friendship, love, irony, humor, parenthood, literature, and music, and the chance to take part in battles for the liberation of others cannot be called meaningless except if the person living it also, is also an existentialist and elects to call it so. It could be that all existence is a pointless joke, but it is not in fact possible to live one's everyday life as if this were so. So you hear what he's saying. He's like, we get it. Like, I, I know it's meaningless. I know it's pointless. But I'm not going to say that because that would be a crazy way to live your life. And you see this discord, this disharmony within this worldview. Uh, By the way, you may note that these are some of the philosophical roots of a very popular philosophy in in our culture today, just like of expressive individualism, because what do people do with this? They look at this foundation of philosophy that says there is no overriding ultimate purpose or reason or meaning to your life. So don't let anyone tell you there is, and then we sit back and think like, well, what am I left with then? I need meaning. I need purpose. We in God's image were designed to have meaning and purpose so therefore I'm free to create my own. If there is no ultimate meaning or purpose to discover because it's not there then we have to fashion our own meaning and purpose and then people just say then you are whoever you want to be and your meaning is your meaning and your purpose is your purpose and no one can tell you any differently so long as you're authentically living out you know, your truth. These are the, the philosophical underpinnings of a very popular philosophy in our culture today. So as I transition to the Christian worldview, I would say even if you're not a Christian, you should want to be one. Because instead of your greatest and happiest moments being like a lie, I'm happiest when I lie to myself and say that life has meaning. As a follower of Jesus, your life has the most purpose and meaning and joy When you're telling yourself the truth. So let's look at that. What is our biblical purpose? And remember again, a purpose is like the aim, the goal, the reason for which something exists or was created. So, in contrast to secularism, right out of the gate in the first chapters of the Bible, we have God telling us, Why are you here? Because I made you, and I made you in my image, and I made you in a garden, and I made you for a purpose. You are not some random consequence of hundreds of millions of years of an undirected process, a happy accident. The Bible says you were uniquely, deliberately, directly created by a God who loves you. And you're already starting to hear, hopefully, some purpose in that, some meaning in that. I want you to notice that though, though this word isn't found in Genesis 1 and 2, the concept is all over Genesis 1 and 2, and that is the concept of worship. Worship. Okay? And if you're like, where's worship in Genesis 1 and 2, where I don't, like, I don't see the singing, you know? And we associate like what happened up here for the first 20, 25 minutes is like, that's worship. And it is. Like when we gather together and we sing praise to God and we read scriptures and we pray and we confess, that is worship, that is worship music. But if we think of that as like, that's all worship is, we're missing most of what worship is for most of our week and most of our lives. The term worship which comes from two words worth ship is literally giving god his due it's ascribing to god everything that he is worthy of and where you hear this in the pages of genesis is god is coming to humankind and he's saying here's what i'm worthy of know me love me trust me obey my will and as that first man and woman were walking around the garden, I, I don't know if they had music yet, but they don't, they're not in worship services, but by walking with God and listening to his voice and responding to his voice and having relationship, they're saying, God, here's what you're worthy. You're worthy of the totality of our lives. And we're walking with you until, of course, everything fell. So a key here is this word glorify. I had Deanna read Psalm 86, 9 this morning because you see this in, in this verse. All the nations you have made. So there's God's claim, like I made you. And by the way, nations is not like America, Russia, France, Kenya, India. It is all the peoples, all the peoples you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And there's this key word. See, we talked about this week one, but Isaiah 43, 7 says we were made for God's glory. When we come to the very end of this story in the Bible, in Revelation 4, we read something like this, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory And honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You go even further toward the end, Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations, all peoples will come and worship you. And you have this concept of glory or glorify, like a real quick word excursion. In the Old Testament, you have these two words, kabed and kabod that are like glorify and glory. In the New Testament, you have related words, doxatso and daxa, glorify and glory. In the Old Testament, the, the, kind of the core idea of kavod is weight, like substantive. And it is the ability to look at God's character and say, we ascribe weight, we ascribe significance to who you are. You are like, to put it this, you're the heaviest thing in the universe. And as we glorify you, it's not that we're adding weight to you that you didn't have before, but we're confessing the weightiness, the significance, the importance of who you are. In the New Testament, there's a different nuance of the doxa is like a splendor or a brightness. It's like, God, in all things, you are holy, you are bright, you are clean, you are pure. And as we glorify you, we're saying... We want to shine the light on your light. We want to draw attention to. And what what all these texts are saying is because God made you to be worshipers, the purpose of our lives is to glorify God. Okay? Okay. So to say it a a, a handful of different ways, to glorify means to draw attention to, to praise, to honor, to live in light of God's glory. It means to use your life, which is your actions, your words, your emotions, your reactions to things, to use all of that to call attention to God's substance, And say the reason I love God, the reason I worship God is he is the most substantive thing in the universe. He's the most brilliant thing in the universe. Okay, so again, come and sing and sing in your car and put your headphones in and sing and do all those. That's great. But let me just, let me show you seven other ways you can glorify God. If this is the purpose of your life, I want to make it practical. We glorify God by centering our lives on him, by treasuring him. We're saying, this is something you are worthy of. That of all these things I could center my life on, all these purposes, all these things that I do and I pull to me to try to get meaning for my life. At the foundational level, I'm going to say, God, you are the center of my life. You are the one thing in the universe that I treasure the most. And that's, that's adding weight to him. That's shining the light on him, saying you are worthy of this in my life. Number two, we glorify God by loving the people and things that God loves. So we go through his word and we see, what what does God love? What does God hate? He's God. And if he is glory, then I don't have the freedom to just make up, like, what will I love? What will I hate? Let me carve my own journey. But it's like, I'm going to ascribe worth to him by saying, you love the right things. You pursue the right things. I want to love and pursue and support and encourage the people and the things that you do. Thirdly, we glorify God by spending time in conversation with him. This is what was going on in the garden. The, the converse, and I use the word conversation because conversation is both speaking to, like praying to God, talking to God. Like sometimes even out loud. God, this is what I'm thinking today. Or God, I'm praising you today. But a conversation is also, I'm listening to you. I'm listening for your voice. I'm responding. And there's an interplay of our lives in dialogue and conversation. I'm not just lecturing God. I'm not just listening to him, but never telling him, like, I love you for these reasons, or I'm struggling for these reasons. Uh, A fourth way to glorify God, by trusting him in good times and bad. Just continuing, not, not just Faith is kind of cognitive, like, my thoughts, I believe. Trust is like, I'm continuing to give you my life today, and it's really hard, and it's really painful, and things are not going the way I thought they would. There's this trial in my life. I trust you because you're worthy of my trust in good times and bad. Fifthly, we glorify God by walking in obedience to his will. Like, the first time humankind did not glorify God, did not worship him, is basically when they listen to the lie of the adversary and they say, I know that's God's will, but we're going to do our thing. Not your will, but ours be done. That doesn't glorify him. But to say, like Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, that's an act of worship, saying, God, you are worthy of my obedience. You're worthy of my honor, whether I feel like it and agree with you or not, because you're God. And then just two more. We glorify God by praising his person and his works. That's probably what we most think of as worship. Like, God, we praise you because you are good and you are powerful and you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and quick to forgive. And all those, like, we're, we're heaping up truths about God and saying, shine the light on the reality of who you are. That's glorifying you. Yes, it is. And finally, by calling on others to glorify him with us. So that's not just evangelism. That's not like come and become a follower of Jesus. But it's not not that, to say come and praise with me. And as I was thinking about these last two points of what glorify means, like praising and then inviting other people to praise, my mind kind of went back to this section of C.S. Lewis in his Reflections on the Psalms. And I just want to read you a little section here. Um, these words are too good so they're CS Lewis is not mine okay but l- listen to this think about what he's saying about glorifying god he says the most obvious fact about praise whether of god or anything strangely escaped me i thought of it in terms of a compliment approval or the giving of honor i had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historic personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? So the psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do— When they speak of what they care about, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we cannot help doing about everything else we value. And I love that enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. I I do this to my family all the time because I'm like a sports fanatic. I'll be like, Marty, you've got to see this replay and then, like, that disappointment in my heart when I was like, she didn't even look up from her spreadsheet. <laughs> You've got to like, I'll rewind it again. This is your last <laughs> chance. This is incredible. <laughs> but do you hear what he's saying? We, we do this with absolutely everything in our lives. And he rattled off all these categories that I'm not going to repeat. But we you just, we just do praise, glorify. We glorify the glory us. And here's what I'm coming to. If the purpose in life is to, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, question one, what is the chief end of man? What is the primary end, purpose, or goal of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? That's question one of the Westminster Catechism. It's not scripture, but it sure is supported with a ton of scripture, and it's why it's question one. Like, if you only get one thing in life, what are you getting What is the purpose of why I'm here? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I've actually been thinking about this. I'm like, maybe that order is wrong. Maybe we should go back to Westminster and like have a new church council. And instead of saying to glorify God and enjoy him forever, maybe the purpose is to live every day to enjoy God. And I mean like savor him, be fully satisfied in him and then just talk about your experience. See because if if we instinctively overflow with the glorify part with anything in our lives that we find like savory and satisfying then maybe the purpose is I want to enjoy God. And you can think about some of the some of the greatest meals you've ever had. You know a lot of meals are just very transactional if you're like me. It's like it's that time of day, or my stomach is growling, and you're just like, you're doing three other things, and food got in you somehow, right? Uh, and there are other meals that you slow down for, and that, that first bite, you're like, whoa. All right, this is, we're going to take a little bit of time with this one, right? I'm going to savor this. And you're walking away satiated, satisfied, and I'm just proposing to you, what if, what if walking with God, what if walking in apprenticeship to Jesus felt more like that, that I'm not gonna have these transactional moments with God of just like, I don't know, I, I guess I did my God thing, but more like, whoa, he met me there with something that was magnificent, with something that was brilliant, with something that was weighty and significant and important, and I enjoyed it, and it satisfied me because this is what I was designed for. And then just, as I said, speak about and share your experience, then you're enjoying God and you're glorifying him. And I want to just close, and this is like the second major point, but I promise it's like a page, okay? Because I just want to show you outcomes of living these three ways real quick. So the outcomes of purpose, I gave you three. Let me, let me just say, a default purpose will always ultimately lead to dissatisfaction. Like that's your big D word right there, Dissatisfaction that if you're jumping from one thing to another to another, like, oh, I wonder what will satisfy me today. I wonder what craving I have. Okay, I'll eat that. I'll do that. I'll experience that. Okay, now it's a hobby. Now it's career. Okay, tonight it's sex. Then tomorrow it's going to be this thing. And I got this vacation plan. And you're jumping, 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 jumping. Like, what is my purpose of life? I don't know. It's just like whatever occurs to me in a utilitarian and pragmatic way to feel happy and healthy. And I pray that you recognize with the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that that entire lifestyle is vanity. It is empty. And the reason you're jumping from one thing to another to another to a relationship to a, a, a lust, which is the negative way of thinking about it, but a desire. And just thinking like, this desire has become this over-desire, and now this desire controls me, and ah, then it over-promised and under-delivered and left me flat and dissatisfied. That's the reality, and it's all over the pages of Scripture. That you were made for so much more than thinking your purpose or your meaning in life is just happiness and health, success, be a basically good person. So a default purpose leads to dissatisfaction. Number two, an evolutionary purpose, naturalistic evolution, leads to despair. Not just like, oh, I'm disappointed, that let me down. Despair. Despair. I was praying this on the way in as I as I look at a culture that is rife with not just disappointment and discouragement but despair hopelessness meaninglessness purposelessness is it any wonder because most of them believe I just am a happy accident I came from nowhere I'm going nowhere and what is life in between I have no idea we have a much better news to share okay so Once more, in the words of Bertrand Russell this time, in his book Mysticism and Logic, he says this, That man, and he means mankind, is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms." That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on a firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Have a good life. I'm thankful that there are naturalistic evolutionary secularists who are honest enough to say stuff like this because you wouldn't believe it if I said it. You'd be like, come on. That's not really where they're landing. It's absolutely where they're landing. Because like Tolstoy, Bertrand Russell's like, we came from nowhere meaningful. We're going nowhere meaningful. We're just an accidental thing that just happened. There is no God. There is no morality. There is no right or wrong. There is no purpose for living. What are you left with? If you're working, 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 and you're like, my work has significance, and it all just burns up in the death of the sun. sounds pretty hopeless. And I believe our world needs this third piece that a biblical purpose leads to delight, not disappointment, not certainly despair. Because I'll say it again, you, like Adam and Eve, were designed for relationship with God. Okay, you were made to find your purpose and meaning in relation with God. And family, there is, there is a joy, there's a contentment, there's a fulfillment that transcends your circumstances if you're doing life with Jesus. Knowing him, loving him, following him, fellowshipping with him, laying down your right to be right when Jesus disagrees with you. And again, I'll say this, that unlike evolutionary theory where your happiest and best moments will be lived out of knowingly lying to yourself, well, there is no purpose to life, but we have to live as if there is one. That's nonsense. Your happiest moments in following Jesus are when you're exposed to the most light, the most truth, the most love, the most grace of just saying, what is the biblical worldview? God made me. God loves me. God has a plan for my life. He has a purpose for my life. And when I messed it all up and you messed it all up, God chased us down and took our burdens and our brokenness on himself and died on the cross, which we'll commemorate in just a moment died on the cross to say, I wash you clean. Your, your purpose is restored. Now go, not in your strength, but in my strength, in my grace, and live this purpose. Enjoy me and glorify me. And if we're saying like, well, that sounds like an the, the arguments made, that is an incredibly narcissistic God. I made you to enjoy me and praise me like, like I needed praise. Well, it's not true i mean it's just it's just not true i understand how we get there first of all god is trinity he's eternally father son and spirit so god was already love he was already loving and being loved before he created anyone he created more people or people you know to to enjoy to to join that divine dance to find joy satisfaction contentment in relationship with him by the way, if he is the most weighty, brilliant thing in the universe and the creator of all that is, then his inviting you to glorify him, again, if we spontaneously praise, as C.S. Lewis says, whatever it strikes our fancy, then should not the most valuable person and creature in the universe? Be worthy of our praise. And is it not an act of love for God to say, stop wasting your life on this stuff that's going to leave you disappointed or in despair. Praise me, and I will leave you with not only delight now in the midst of your brokenness and pain and trials, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with delight forever. So walk away from your well-thought-out, your not-well-thought-out defaults. I'm chasing this today, I'm chasing this today. I hope this brings meaning to my life. Be willing, like this week, especially as you work through questions that we give you, to acknowledge what are some of those default things that just keep popping up in my life that I I just chase, food, sex, more education, a new friendship, a new relationship, my career, social standing, whatever it is, and just say like, that is not my purpose, that is not where I'm gonna strive to find my meaning. Also, friend, walk out of despair. It really is that worldview that leads to despair and, like Tolstoy says, like suicidal ideations. To know the very opposite of, like, wait, from the very beginning, I, me, personally, individually matter to God, was made in the image of God. He has a purpose for my life that brings delight. And maybe I can't see it right now, but he promises in his word that this is true. And it continually happens in the lives of those who hang on and are faithful through the brokenness because he's faithful to them. So say goodbye to disappointment. Say goodbye to despair. Say hello to delight because God has a purpose for your life, joy in glorifying him.